0: We're in First Kings, or excuse me, we're in Second Kings, uh, excuse me, Second Kings chapter 8, as Pastor Nathan just read, and uh, we, it's been roughly a month since we've been back in this study for one event or another. Lots of uh, uh, special services happened in the month of March, and then we had a couple of special services for Easter and whatnot, but we're back here in our study of these books of Kings. And just to sort of uh, reorient you, get you situated, and make you all comfortable, and hopefully then make you uncomfortable. Uh, it Just to get you into this, just remember what is happening in these books. These two books, First and Second Kings, are basically a two-volume set written by the historian, which constitutes and he goes to great lengths to relay this epic, tragic fall of God's people. Much like in the same vein that you could read the history and you could read the fall of the Roman Empire perhaps. Here we have for us the fall of the people of Israel. And it's relayed to us in every single appalling detail with which they they exchanged the sacred of Yahweh for this sordid and filthy of the world. That's what's really been chronicled for us. God's people at every avenue compromise, exchange something sacred for something awful. And it's led them to this course where now, of course, the, the kingdom is divided. They're at war. They're, they're feeling the all of the effects of the rebellion of God, the rejection of God's word. And remember why this is all being chronicled. It's being chronicled specifically for Israelites who are themselves experiencing all of the ill effects of exile itself. And perhaps for one reason or another, these particular Israelites, maybe they had forgotten their own history. Maybe they had forgotten parts of it. Maybe they were confused as to how in the world we, the chosen of Yahweh, are here in this exiled place. How did we get here? And the historian seems to answer that question. Here's here's how you got there. You forgot that life is all about living according to the word of the Lord. As we've everywhere striven to emphasize. So along the way as he's relaying all these details. He's doing two things at once. He's doing very specific things chronologically. He's showing them the, cro- the timeline, we could say, of how this king made this sacrifice and made it to where now we don't have to worship just Yahweh. We can allow other things in. We can compromise. And, and how that led to other things. He's doing that in a sequential sort of order, showing us the ways in which Israel fell. But I think along the way, even more importantly, he's making a lot of theological points. And that's one of the things that I think will come to the surface this morning. Because all throughout this history, it's not just history. It's not like a history textbook that you would find and perhaps find really extremely boring in your high school history class, where it just relates details and dates and events and you have to memorize them for the test. And you don't really know what their significance is, perhaps. Here, he's giving us these names and dates and events, and he's showing you the significance of how God deals with people who reject him. See, that's what he's doing. He's relaying history while at the same time revealing who God is. You know, that's what your whole Bible is about. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a book of revelation. It shows us who God is and how he deals with sinners like you and me and how he interacts with the world, this whole Bible. All of its 30,000 odd verses, all of its 1,189 chapters, all of its 66 books have as their fundamental premise the unveiling of who God is. Showing you who Jehovah's like. This Yahweh that has chosen Israel. What type of God is he? Here we have it for us. Relayed to us by this historian himself. He's preserved these words. As Paul says in Romans 15. For our learning. Which brings me to this text here. In chapter 8 of 2 Kings. Because at first these two stories. Might not just seem unrelated. But they're going to seem perhaps unremarkable in some ways. They're very perhaps distant and different. We have this one story about this woman who is able to get all of her estate returned to her after a seven-year famine. And then in the, next cha- in the next portion, down through verse 15, we have this story about this court official suffocating his own king to death. How in the world did those stories make sense together? Why would this historian include them here? Well, we trust And we know, and I believe truly, that both of these stories show us amazing lessons. Two amazing lessons, in fact, from this very text that show us who our God is. Who is Yahweh? Well, he's the God who is over both of these scenes here, which leads me to point number one. Firstly, our God is a God who abundantly restores our God is a God who abundantly restores. Notice the story does something really interesting here at the beginning of chapter, uh, chapter 8. By reintroducing us to this woman from Shunem. Notice, then he spake, then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life. Saying, arise and go thou and thine household and sojourn wherever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. Of course, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, this is the Shunammite woman from chapter 4 of Second Kings. The same woman who made a little room for Elisha who to entertain her, uh, entertain him on his travels. And then also at the end of the bulk of that chapter, the bulk of that story, deals with just the fact that her son was dead and then Elisha restores him back to life. It's significant to me that this woman, this random woman, may be significant in some ways, but... She figures here in the story again. And I think clearly there's something for us to glean from her life and story. She's here again in the narrative of the kings. This woman from Shunem. So Elisha warns her. Warns her of this famine that's going to last seven years. It's going to come upon the land and make it almost unbearable to live. Side note. Planned side note. But it's not clear whether this famine is the one that's mentioned in chapter 4 or whether it's the one that's mentioned in chapter 6 or whether it's just some new famine which is just to say, I I don't know after even studying this, if the historian is being strictly chronological which is just to say, does this event with this Shunammite woman does it happen really close, more closely after the events of chapter 4 or is it multiple years later when this famine happens I don't know I don't know if he's being strictly accurate in terms of making things appear in chronological order. I think rather what he's doing is he's using this story to make a theological point. Just as he's going to do, because we notice in verse number 4, you might remember that name, that guy Gehazi. Remember what happened to him at the end of chapter (laughs) 5? If you remember chapter 5, Naaman, the leper, the king, uh, the captain of the guard from Syria has leprosy. He's healed. And then who gets his leprosy? Gehazi does. Because of his unbelief. Because of his betrayal. Because of his swindling of Naaman and his confession, so to speak. Not to re-preach that. But if you go there, at the end of chapter 5, Gehazi is cursed with living with leprosy for the rest of his life. Does this, Has that happened yet? <laughs> like, thinking like historically about this text that's what I was thinking through has, is, has he here a leper or why would he be so familiar with the king in his court if he's a leper and that's, that's just where my mind was going <laughs> was just to say I don't know if he's being strictly chronological but I think he's using the story as we're going to show to make a very important theological point was just to say the story is here for us it's here at this place for a specific reason Very specific reason. Because as we know, this this woman from Shunem, this Shunemite woman who has, yes, lots of prestige and renown. She, at the sheer word of Elisha the prophet, obeys and takes refuge elsewhere. Notice, did you see that? He gives her this warning. A famine of seven years is about to come on the land. Verse number two. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years and then after the seven years were over, she returns. She comes back to her homeland. And immediately she seeks an audience with the king to get back all of her estate, verse 3. And it came to pass at the seven years end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. And she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. It's hers by right. She goes to get it back after seven years of being on a sojourn, being on a siesta we might say. And it's interesting because you just, just imagine, it just so happens that at that, same time, at that same time as the woman who is now coming into this courtroom to ask for her estate to be returned to her as it is rightfully hers, at that same exact moment, Gehazi is talking to the king, telling him about this woman. It couldn't be more serendipitous, we might say, and of course we know it's not just that, it is perfectly arranged by God. Look at verse 4. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, the servant of Elisha, saying, Tell me, I pray thee all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha, restored to life speak of the devil here she is that's literally what's happening here in this moment as this story is being told and there's there she is you can ask her this is what Elisha has done this is what he's done for her she relays her story verse 6 when the king asked the woman she told him she told him all the things that Elisha did if you don't remember I challenge you read that chapter Elisha is grieving over that boy, that boy that is promised to her by an amazing promise from God. And then suddenly the boy dies in this very accidental, seemingly random series of events. And that woman comes to him, why would you have given me this gift? I'm going to re-preach chapter 4, I don't mean to. Uh, Why would you give me this? This gift of a son. And then take him away. And Elisha prays over that whole scene, prays over that house, and a miracle happens. The boy is raised to life. It's the same one. You can imagine how she must have told this story, this stirring, stirring testimony. And it moves the king so much so. Verse 6 again. So the king appointed unto her a certain official, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. She's getting all of the kickbacks from leaving. From leaving seven years ago. Give her all of that and then some up till just now. Restore it all. He's so moved by the story of this Shunammite woman. He restores all her property, all her estate, all her possessions. It's back. It's given back to her. It's a sweet story. He might... Think of or imagine just putting you know, the, the familiar in they live happily ever after at the end of it. It just kind of has that feel, doesn't it? This woman from Shunem. Again, this random woman from Shunem has been shown such wealth, abundance of kindness from the Lord. Through the prophet Elisha. Through this random testimony of Elisha's servant. Which just so happened to be told at the same time she's coming into that courtroom. She's had her son restored to life. She's had her land restored to her possession. And I thought, why? Why this woman? What, why does she figure so much in this narrative? She doesn't have much to say in other places. She doesn't have much to do in all of the other history of the kings. And in fact, considering all of the the expansive and immense history of the kings of Israel. What is this woman doing? She's kind of from nowhere and she's just there and she appears. And yet, what great and immense blessing come upon her. Well, I think... I think God intends for Israel to see themselves in this woman. I think he wants Israel to see themselves and how he has dealt with this woman. Let me explain. Because I think all that God was going to covenant to do for his people, with his people, is seen in how he deals with this woman. How he restores her and that. I think that's the key word. Notice back in verse 1. That word restore appears three times or four times in the span of three verses. Notice verse 1. Then Elisha spake unto the woman whose son he had restored to life. Notice verse number 5. And it came to pass he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life. That behold the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house. And then verse 6, restore all that was hers. There is a pattern there. Pattern of restoration. This, this all culminates in the complete restoration of all that was hers. But that restore is a word that is much more significant than it just lets on. It's not just giving back what is rightfully hers. You know what it literally means? It literally means to be quickened or to be revived, i.e. Resurrection. It's a word that has that meaning at its core. It's a word that is, yes, likewise used throughout the prophets. Throughout all the minor prophetic writings that we find at the end of the Old Testament. Describing how God would deal with his people. Go with me to the book of Amos. Maybe you'll have a hard time finding that one. Maybe you can use your table of contents. Maybe I might have to too because it's so small. Go to the book of Amos in the Minor Prophets in chapter 5. Watch watch what words he uses here. It's very significant. To show us how God was using this woman as, we might say, a living parable of how he was going to deal with his own people. Look at Amos chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Hear ye this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God. The city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred. And that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord of the house of Israel. Seek ye me and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel. Or enter into Gilgal and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, and ye shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. That word live is the same word. Seek ye the Lord, and ye shall live, ye shall be restored, ye shall be revived. That's what he's saying to these people. He shall be restored. Notice verse 14. Seek good and not evil that ye may live, that ye may be restored. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. You can see at the heart of this prophetic message what is happening. You've turned away from God. Seek him and there is life. Seek him and there is restoration. There's a restoration that is complete. Restoration that is full, restoration that looks a lot more like resurrection. And again, not to belabor the point, but go to Ezekiel. I couldn't help but read a couple of these verses, verses that we can allude to often. Ezekiel chapter 37, you might know what this chapter is. It's the chapter which relays to us the vision, Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. Let me just read a couple of these verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spear of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And again, he said to me, prophesy unto these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus say the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live, ye shall be restored. That's what he's saying. The restoration of Israel was seen, yes, in dry bones, but yes, also in a Shunammite son being brought back to life. He's using God is using these two amazing pictures of a valley of skeletons being raised with sinew and muscle back on them. And yes, a boy who is cold from death being warmed again with life as an image, as a picture of how, yes, God was going to deal with his own people. Yes, they may be dead in their sins, dead in their rebellion. But he is God, the spirit of life. And yes, through him, restoration happens. Through him, life occurs. This is our God, my friends. He's a God of revival, a God of renewal, a God, yes, of restoration. And think about this message. This message from the prophets, Ezekiel and Amos and others. Yes, to a nation who had so long hundreds of years rebelled against God and rejected him and spurned and spat upon his promises. What does he promise to do to them? Raise them back to life. Restore them. He wants to bring them, I'm I'm not going to go there, but you can go to Ezekiel chapter 36, it even talks about this. He wants to bring them out of the land of their sojourn into the land of promise, just like this woman brought out of the land of her sojourn back into the land of promise. And there they receive abundant restoration. Just like he did for this woman, just like he did for his people, my friends, just like he does for each and every one of you this morning, here, right now. He's a God who refuses, even for a second, even for a millisecond, of ever forsaking us. Never for a second. Even though we deserve to be. Even though we forsake him. He is a God who never forsakes us. And he is a God, yes, a God who restores. That's his good news to us. That's his good news to the world. And yes, my friends, he's still in the business of restoration even this morning. But that brings me to my second lesson. The first is... Our God is a God who abundantly restores. But secondly, our God is a God who reluctantly judges. A God who reluctantly judges. Notice verse 7. Because here the historian is going to shift gears in the story. From talking about this Shunammite woman and her son and what happened with her. To now, Elisha is suddenly on the road going to Damascus. A city in Syria. Syria. Notice, and Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither. This king, Ben Hadad, he's figured quite prominently in the previous chapters, the king of Syria who has invaded and attacked and all sorts of uh, skirmishes. And here he's fallen severely ill. And we know it's serious because of the word he uses in verse 8. Notice his question. And the king said unto Haziel, his sort of his aide, his captain, we might say, Take a present in thine hand, he says to him. And go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? You know what that word recover is? It's the same word as restore from previously. He's at the point where he's thinking he doesn't just need medicine, he needs restoration. He's in a very bad way. This virus has very fatal potential. So he insists that this court official Haziel go. Go to that man of God who's coming to town. Ask him. I need to know what's going to become of me. Am I going to make it out of this? Do we have to go back into quarantine? What's happening with this disease? So Haziel goes. Verse number 9. And he takes 40 camels decked to the nines with gifts to present to this man of God. Perhaps to curry his favor when prophesying about this king's condition. So Haziel went, verse 9, to meet him and took a present with him even of every good thing of Damascus. 40 camels burdened and came and stood before him and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee saying, Shall I recover of this disease To which Elisha gives this very puzzling reply. Notice verse number 10. And Elisha said unto him, Go, say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit, the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. Huh? What? Did Elisha just contradict himself? (laughs) What does he mean by saying that he's going to recover but he's surely going to (laughs) die? Well, I think very... Simply, I think Elijah just means to say that influenza is not going to be on this king's death certificate. <laughs> He's going to recover from this sickness, whatever it might have been. He's not going to be snuffed out by this sickness. And yet, he knows that, that there is coming a day when he shall die. In fact, he knows when it's going to be. He knows, as he says there, because the Lord hath showed me point is not this virus, it's just the fact that this king is going to die and he knows how. And that's when he pauses. There's this almost unsaid insinuation that after Elisha says, he has shown me that he shall surely die. It's almost as if he knows how and he was about to say it and then he pauses. Look at verse 11. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. He fixes his gaze right on that court official Haziel. He stares him in the eyes until suddenly Haziel doesn't know what to do. He's ashamed and he sees this man of God weeping. He's not just crying alligator tears. He's weeping. He's bent over shedding tears because of how disturbing the disturbing future that he knows that's in store for Haziel He's disappointed, yes, over what the Lord has shown him. And what is that? Verse 12, And Hazael said, Why weepeth my Lord? And Elisha answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children, and rip up their women with child. Nasty prophecy. Unsettling, uncomfortable, something that we might want to avoid. It's full of sorrow and slaughter and savagery. Imagine being told that that was your fate. (laughs) You might very well respond like Haziel does. Notice verse 14 uh, or verse 13. And Haziel said, But what is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, the lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over syria do you really think i'm capable of something like that preacher do you really think that that's within me to do something as grotesque as all of what you've just described is that really really think of me <laughs> that's what he's saying to elijah here in this moment do you really think this low um, low enough to you you think that i'm a dog Hazel, you can imagine, was just incredulous. (laughs) He could not believe that this would be associated with him. I could never do anything like that. He couldn't wrap his mind around this idea that his hands could be responsible for dashing children and ripping up pregnant women. Sounds awful. Sounds horrendous. But I think it just goes to show that He didn't know his own heart. He wasn't even honest with himself. Because notice what happens. As soon as he leaves the presence of Elisha. He acts in violence towards his king. Verse 14. So he departed from Elisha. And came to his master who said to him. What said Elisha to thee? And he answered. He told me that thou shouldest surely recover. Which is only partly true. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Haziel reigned in his stead. (laughs) He told them part of what Elisha said. You're going to recover from the sickness. But literally, no, he was concocting a plan to suffocate his king and take his throne. Stand up guy. And I think there's a lesson for us here before we get to the larger lesson that I want to spend the remaining of our time on. The smaller lesson, but nonetheless significant, is just this that I think sometimes we're like hazy, all aren't we? We're the greatest unbelievers in our own depravity. We're the greatest unbelievers that we could ever do something as horrible as often as what we see on the news. You click the news, and what do you often see? You see something criminal. You see something corrupt. You see something so vile. And what's your first thought? It's mine, too. I could never do something like that. I could never do that. That's not within, that's not within, I, I'm not as bad as that guy. <laughs> I may have my problems, but I'm not out there chopping up people and putting them into boxes and being like a murderer that you see in all those documentaries. (laughs) I'm not like that guy. Which, doesn't that sound eerily like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18? That's the thought that exposes Haziel. His thoughts, at least. He never thought of himself as this bad. Which just reminds me, I love this. This quote from a friend and he says, we are all three bad days in a row from becoming a tabloid headline. And most of us are already on day two. (laughs) Which is just to say, we we are all on that field of sin. It comes from our hearts, my friends. What does Jesus say in Mark chapter 7? That the, the crux of sin springs from the heart of man. Comes from what's on the inside. Within each and every one of us here this morning, yes, is a heart of sin. God forbid. God may his grace keep us from ever thinking that we could ever do something like this. Because we could. But for the grace of God we go. Much like Haziel. But I think what makes this seem so tragic isn't Haziel's blindness to his own heart and soul. Yes, that's awful. He doesn't even know how deplorable and depraved he really is. To me, what makes this scene so utterly tragic, but also so fascinating, is just the fact that these aren't Elisha's words. This isn't his estimation of Haziel. This is Yahweh's words about Haziel. And in fact, this is all keeping. With, Hazel, with the God's plan for Haziel himself. Notice that word in verse 10, number 10. Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord hath showed me. And notice how again he repeats it, Elisha does in verse 13. The Lord hath showed me. These are Yahweh's words. I think what was shown to Elisha was this Looming fury that was about to come upon all of God's people at the very hands of Haziel himself and I think that that's why he weeps he's bowled over in tears precisely because he knew of the violence that would follow Haziel all the way to the throne of Syria and that would follow him all of the days of his reign his reign would be brutal, it would be violent and it would continue it would be violence that is meted out on God's own people. You see, I think within those tears is something deeper and truer than just a prophet who is forlorn over a very hard prophecy to give. You see, Haziel's rise to power was entirely in keeping with the God's word. You don't have to go there, but he's mentioned. Did you know that? In 1 Kings chapter 19... After that great experience where Elijah, the prophet, the, the one who is, precedes Elisha. Remember, he sees uh, the, all of these great events and then you, you have that moment where the, God's not in any of them. He is in the still small voice. Remember that scene. At the end of it, God gives Elijah three people to go anoint. Haziel, right here. Jehu, we're going to get to in a minute. And Elisha. This was parts and parcel of God's commands to his very prophet to anoint, yes, this court official to be an arm of justice on his own people. He's going to be a king of judgment. You see, that's what is behind all this. This destruction that would follow Haziel. You know what it actually was? It was the hand of divine judgment on God's own people that's what he does he's going to do that over and over again as we you you can read about it in the prophets he uses foreign lands to come and judge his own people here he's doing it right here Haziel king of Syria he is going to be the one who is going to judge God's own people for how often and how stubborn they have disdained and disregarded God and his word Their sin wouldn't go unpunished. It would be judged severely and swiftly. And yes, with great holy justice by this God. You see, that's why Elisha cries. Because he knows. (laughs) He knows how severe this is. He knows what it's going to do to his brothers and sisters. He knows what this is going to do to his fellow countrymen, his own people of Israel. And yet he also knows at the same time that it's necessary. It's a necessary judgment that's coming upon God's people and he weeps Israel has turned their backs on God. They've turned away from him. They've gone their own way. As it says in Isaiah, they are like sheep, have gone astray, gone on their own ends, on their own routes, and yet now they're getting their due here. Yes, through this king of Syria. It was a sorrowful prophecy. One that was dealing with this necessary judgment of God. And I would say that Here Elisha stands almost as a representative of God's own heart. Yahweh uses Elisha as his voice, and I say I would say here he uses Elisha as his heart. He's weeping. He's weeping, yes, notice over his people. I think we gravely misunderstand the God of the Bible if we believe that his greatest thrill is punishment. That's not his gay- greatest thrill, and yet he's often caricatured in that light, right? As if God is you know, reclining up on some patio of heaven with his feet up, swipping sweet tea, seeing how he might screw around with the world. <laughs> no, 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 here, have a, have a pandemic. Here, have some riots. Here, have... The West Nile virus. You you can go back through the ages and there's all kinds of things we go to. It's almost, is God just messing with us? God must love to see people suffer. Or else, why would he do this? Let me tell you this morning definitively, Yahweh, God in heaven, takes no delight in judgment. He doesn't enjoy it. It's not what he gets delight out of. He doesn't enjoy seeing his people suffer. Nor, would I say, does he enjoy chastising those who are his own. He does it out of love. He judges out of love, yes. But you know what? One prophet, actually, you have to see this. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to go to some passages as we close. But I want you to see this. It's so important. Isaiah chapter 28. You know what Isaiah calls this work of God in judgment? Notice Isaiah 28 verse 21. Listen to what he says. For the Lord shall rise up in Mount Parazim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon. That he may do his work. His strange work. And bring to pass his act. His strange act. It's something that is strange to God because it is part of his holy and righteous goodness that he has to deal out. Yes, holy and righteous judgment. Holy and righteous wrath as he has just noted. That's not his heart. His heart is not wrathful, vengeful, angry, and belligerent. Go with me to the book of Lamentations. Look at this verse. These verses are amazing. Look at Lamentations chapter 3 you want to see what the heart of God is? Lamentations chapter 3. Look at verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief. Yet he will have compassion. According to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly. Nor grieve the children of men. Literally that verse could be translated. He does not afflict willingly. From his heart. He does so because they have yes called for it themselves. By their own rebellion. By their own retribution. They have called for their own undoing. God's heart as it says here is full of compassion. And a multitude of mercy. And it pains him. It grieves him when he has to afflict his children. Because of their sin. He reluctantly judges his own because he knows what they are asking for. is not some light thing. It is judgment that comes from his hands. Go with me lastly to Ezekiel chapter 18. We were there a moment ago, but you notice notice these verses. If you think God just wants to have people suffer, make people go through hard times because he's a vindictive God. Listen to these words. He's pleading with his own people to turn back to him. Yes, to turn back to he who is the God of restoration. Notice verse 21 of Ezekiel 18. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, our word restored, and he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. And his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Saith the Lord God. And not that he should return from his ways and live. I have no pleasure that the wicked go to the ends that their wicked ways deserve. I want them, I'm pleading with them to turn. My heart is with them. Joel chapter 2 says this, Therefore also know that saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious, and merciful, and slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. This is God. He wants, yes, even now, he's telling his people through the prophet Elisha, yes, turn to me. It does him no joy to judge his people. And as we have seen, he judges them severely and swiftly. And yes, this morning, you can know too that this is the same God. This is his heart for you, my friends. He's a God who is ready to receive you, yes, even this morning, and receive you and completely into his abundant restoration. And your persistent unbelief, your persistent rejection and refusal to, yes, repent and believe this good news, it begets only one thing. The reluctant judgment of Yahweh, which is swift and severe We don't want that fate, and yet our consistent refusal to adhere to the things of God's word, that's the only thing that it gets. That's the only thing that it sows. Reaping unbelief begets judgment, and it pains God to deliver it. His heart is full of mercy and abundant restoration. Sinner, friend, this is God for you this morning. Will you stop your wondering? Stop your going your own way. Stop choosing lesser gods. Stop choosing the things of this world that promise so much, that ask you to give so much and they never return on their promises. This God is the only God who can abundantly restore and he does so. He's waiting to do so in your heart and life here this morning. This heart of God for Israel is the same heart of God for you and me. And every sinner in the world, he waits to receive us. He waits to do as he loves to do. To deal out forgiveness and mercy and kindness. That's what he takes pleasure in. Not in judgment, not in wrath. But in dealing with people Not according to their sins, but according to the riches of mercy that is in his son, Jesus Christ. This is our God. A God of restoration and renewal and revival and reluctant judgment. How do you stand this morning, sinner? Let us pray.